WBZ original. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Ow! All right, are we ready to podcast? <laughs> yes! We're ready. Last week of January, can you believe this? We are Whoa. chugging right through winter here mm. at Studio BZ. Kind Still? of excited about the Pats. In the big oh wait well, no no oh. that was last year oh. uh, but we are still Alston's number year. one podcast yeah uh, yep. it's season four episode fourteen welcome in everybody I'm Paula Evan I'm John Keller I am Liam Martin we've got a packed podcast for you this week Deval Patrick. Yeah. Uh, you might have heard, although you might not have seen him anywhere, really, is running for president. Why? He's still in the race. No one knows. John's going to give his uh, opinion on why, but I did oh. sit down with Deval Patrick. We got in-depth about where he stands in this race, why he hasn't gotten much traction, and where he stands on some of the big issues in 2020. Liam spoke with Gretchen Carlson and State Senator Diana DeZoglio about changing our state law Governing sexual harassment settlements. This is a really interesting issue. They want to get, they Gretchen want, Carlson is the former Fox anchor who right. sued for sexual mm-hmm. harassment, right? She By was Roger the one Ailes. who yeah. helped take down Roger Ailes right. along with some of the other women at Fox News. And they want to get rid of these non-disclosure agreements that right. so many women and some men have had to sign when they file sexual harassment claims. And we should say, Liam and I spoke with State Senator Diana DiZoglio in the studio last year when she was a young staffer on Beacon Hill. She, too, suffered sexual harassment, complained about it, and lost her job. And so she has been part of this whole world herself. And then we just got the Boston Calling lineup for 2020. It's awesome. I'm so pumped. (laughs) You don't love the 1975, John? You loved 1975. Carlton Fisk. But the band is the 1975. Oh, yeah. I I love them. Yeah. Well, we're going to give you the the headliners (laughs) for this year. There are some surprises And these headliners, we're going to get to that, are the 90s back is one of the conversations this has sparked. And Mm. the ticket prices for this. Obscene. And what do we make of the gentrification of our music festivals? Inevitable. What has happened? Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick is now running in the Democratic primary for president and joins us now. Thanks for coming on. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be here. Nice to see you. The last few national polls, this is not going to be a surprise to you. Polls. (laughs) Polls. They've got you under 1% right now. The last few ones do. I know you got in late, but why haven't you resonated more at this point? Well, first of all, I don't think the polls are the measure. I think, uh, first of all, I am personally skeptical of polls. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if I had relied on polls, I never would have been governor, not the first time or the second time. Uh, and uh, why it is we, we are so obsessed with polls when uh, we had the 2016 outcome, notwithstanding those polls, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. um, we're doing the work, and we're doing it at the ground. Uh, we're talking to people. We're listening to people. I've done, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 events in just the last few days. We'll be doing 35 more uh, in, the, uh, in the six days after uh, uh, we're back from our next trip to South Carolina. Uh, and it's brick by brick, person by person, signature by signature, uh, volunteer by, uh, um, by volunteer. Are you too late? We're only two and a half weeks from Iowa. You know, it's interesting. Um, most of the people I meet and most of the polls you see... Uh, show uh, an overwhelming number of people who are undecided. Mm -hmm. And when I meet people who ask me that question, I I often say to them, you know, have you decided? And they say no. 
And I say, well, I'm not too late for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, as I say, we're making the we're making the case. I think it's important for folks not to uh, wait for permission. And by that, Liam, I mean there is a way that uh, that the focus on polls, that the focus on money and celebrity and so forth. Uh, gives people permission to believe that the candidate and the campaign uh, is the one they should back. Mm. And what I'm simply saying uh, to people is be informed and make your own mind. Let's get past the horse race stuff a little bit and into the politics, Mm -hmm. the policy. On MLK Day, you Mm -hmm. unveiled a set of proposals for equity for black Americans, and Mm -hmm. that includes reparations Mm. for the living descendants of slaves. Mm. What exactly is the proposal? Well, it's first of all, it... uh, I make the point, and I believe it strongly, that reparations without reconciliation uh, is meaningless. Mm. Uh, I'm not talking about, nor am I interested in just trying to figure out uh, the numeric current value of 40 acres and a mule. I'm trying to um, have us confront uh, some of our unfinished business, our, our history that we don't know what uh, Reconstruction was about, how it was so systematically undone, what the propaganda uh, uh, campaign was in the aftermath of it. There's so much about the state of uh, uh, of current circumstances facing African Americans that uh, has its roots in choices that we made then and have been making since. And I think it's important that we all under understand that, not as a kind of a you know guilt tripping thing, but that we simply understand our origins and our interconnectedness. Well, how do you and see that I, working in in real terms? Well, given that so, there are some Americans who are descended from both slaves yes. and slave owners. That's right. How do you deal with a case like that? Well, it's, it's not about dealing with a case like that. It's about um, explaining that there is, uh, that we have that uh, connection. You know, I am the descendant of slaves and slave owners. Mm. I myself mm. uh, in, uh, uh, in Kentucky. And most of us, or many of us, have storylines like that we don't uh, fully understand. And it contributes, I think, or can, uh, to a greater sense of understanding. Um, so that when we are investing in, uh, in closing achievement gaps, when we're investing in public education generally, when we're investing in infrastructure that reaches uh, communities that have been left out and left back, that folks understand that that's a priority because we're trying finally to level uh, the playing field and reach the talent we know resides in every single community in America. Now, moving on to tax reform. Mm-hmm. You reject Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a 2% wealth tax. Why? Well, it's harsh to say. I mean, I think the, uh, the thrust is right, but I think the problem is not wealth. It's greed. It's the hoarding of benefits uh, among a few very fortunate rather than and expecting it'll trickle down, which is the way it was described to us. But if it's 30 or 40 years ago, if it has been hoarded, then don't you tax that? Well, that's tax. I think there's a better way at uh, uh, at funding uh, the needs that uh, that people have and they want their government to respond to. One is to restore the estate tax uh, to the level it was the time or the time before that. I think about 55 percent. There's a general consensus that that makes sense. It's a system we know works, unlike the, uh, the wealth tax. I also think we need a, uh, a corporate tax that is more reflective of what the consensus was in the business community. You know, the, the view was that we needed to reduce our rate so that it would, we would be competitive with other jurisdictions, and the consensus was that that was about 25%. We didn't need to go it's 21%. To 21. Now. We didn't need to go uh, uh, that deep. We should bring it back uh, to uh, 25, and then we should finish the work which, in my view, is eliminating all of the loopholes and, uh, and, and ways in which highly profitable companies don't pay anything. 
And though the argument for them in the first place, Liam, remember, was that this is what it would take to make an otherwise high tax system competitive. So now we have a competitive rate. Let's eliminate uh, eliminate those that those two, uh, and radical simplification of our uh, individual um, uh, uh, tax code. I think uh, gets the job done. Where do you stand on Medicare for all? So interesting. You you ask it that way because that's become a slogan that means a lot of different things to a lot of. It different It does places. mean a lot of different things. I mean, but for say, for instance, the proposal from Senator Bernie Sanders, where do you stand on? I'm that? not there. I think uh, the next step for us should be a uh, a public option, and the reason. I, and by the way, from my perspective, that public option could well be Medicare. But the reason I, uh, I get there is because my experience here in Massachusetts is that there is a value in having uh, creative tension. And um, when I project out nationally, I think the idea of having uh, the insurance industry figure out, and they surely will, some way to compete uh, for all the folks who will move to that no-cost or low-cost public option is a good thing in terms of added pressure to bring system costs down. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think there's a value uh, on the public side as well as having that, uh, in having that kind of creative uh, uh, tension to innovate on the Medicare side because, frankly, if you're eligible for Medicare and you can, most people today, Liam, will buy a supplemental policy on top of Medicare because Medicare doesn't get the job done. How do you get the cost down, though? Obviously, the Affordable Care Act, to some extent, dealt with access. More mm -hmm. people had access. Right. But cost remains the really big issue. Right. Medicare for all, the proponents of that would say, this solves that. It's the government paying for it. No, it's, it's us paying for it, first of all. It's not the government paying for it. Let's all be clear that we're talking, the government is just the name we give to the things we choose to do together, mm -hmm. right? As Barney Frank uh, used to say, and I think so well. Um, we, uh, first of all, system costs, there are, there's so much excess and waste in the system. The folks in healthcare will tell you that. The, uh, uh, the number of unnecessary uh, tests, the amount of duplication, the, there is value in things like uh, electronic records, in telehealth, uh, for example, uh, in, uh, uh, in de delivering more primary care in community settings. But you have to create that system and you have to create habits of use so that we're pushing more of that uh, uh, of those choices out into lower cost, high quality uh, settings. And we have to make sure those settings exist everywhere. In, uh, in South Carolina, I'm sorry I'm going on, but this is really important. Uh, in South Carolina, the number of folks who live in rural communities where those rural hospitals are being closed today by this administration. Um, you know, I understand the economics of that. I don't understand all of the choices um, that are made uh, between communities of color and communities of uh, uh, where, uh, where uh, white South Carolinians uh, live. Um, but beyond that, suppose you could deliver uh, low-cost, accessible care through telehealth in many cases. That's great, so long as you have broadband. Mm. So the mm. interconnectedness of so many of these policy choices has to be seen, has to be dealt with, and that's how I think about uh, advancing policy. It's interesting before you use the phrase creative tension, mm. and I think during your time as governor of Massachusetts, some people would say you had a contentious relationship, that there was a fair amount of that tension with the state legislature. Yeah. Um, those were mostly Democrats and Democratic lawmakers. Should that raise doubts about your ability to manage even people from the same party. You know, yours. it's so interesting. It, it's, it's as if somehow the measure of success is uh, getting along instead of getting stuff done. The legislature, God bless them, um, 
gave me 95% of what I asked for. Rarely when I asked for it, and rarely in the form I asked for it, but we got there. And the fact that we had some of those, um, uh, some of those conversations out in the open, um, that's okay. That's part of the process. I hope that they never felt it was, uh, it was disrespectful. I never intended it um, to be, and I respect their role. And I think in time they came to respect mine. But the fact is we got stuff done. Mm. We got stuff done. And it wasn't about, you know, uh, uh, you know this uh, member of the, uh, of the leadership winning over that one, although that was a narrative that folks in... Uh, uh, in your line of work, uh, <laughs> like to uh, like to run. It was about what we were doing for the benefit of the people we serve. And in that respect, I think uh, I think our record is pretty darn good. The race is shaping up the presidential race uh, between the progressives, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and then the moderates, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, for instance. I know you don't necessarily like this question, but where do you fall <laughs> in that spectrum? You because know, voters are trying yeah. to decide... Is he generally going to align with me? Because well, I'm not going to know exactly where he stands right, on every single right, thing. Yeah. I think, first of all, voters, um, they understand people don't fit in a box. Um, increasingly, I think um, a moderate um, in this cycle is a progressive who actually gets stuff done. Um, and I've gotten stuff done. You know, in partnership with the legislature, 99% of our residents have health insurance today. Uh, we have a national model response to climate change with uh, our participation in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, closing the remaining uh, coal-fired uh, power plants, the statewide resilience and recovery plan, the Green Jobs uh, uh, Act, the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the generation of so much more solar and wind uh, uh, sourcing for, uh, for our electricity. You know, criminal sentencing reform, job creation, 25-year job high coming out of uh, recessions. Everybody has plans. We have results. Mm, since you brought up your record, do you wish you had done more on the MBTA? It, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd done more uh, on uh, a whole host of, uh, of uh, infrastructure investments. We did uh, historic levels of investments. I'm really proud of the fact that the new orange and red line cars are being rolled out. I've asked twice, as you may recall, uh, for more revenue from, uh, uh, from the legislature to invest in our transportation uh, infrastructure. And I did that because I know uh, what I think most citizens know, which is that we are not going to get a 21st century T by reorganizing. And, uh, and any serious executive uh, would understand that. Last question. Uh, your wife, Diane, yes. you, of course, had waited to get into the race because she had uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. And, when and you, she is cancer-free. Thank goodness. God. Thank yes. God. Absolutely. Um, you, she sought advice from Michelle Obama. She did. I have heard before you actually decided to get into the race. Mm -hmm. Did you seek advice from President Obama? And uh, did Michelle Obama say anything to Diane that you can share with us here. Um, you, you know not to ask me what uh, <laughs> President Obama said to me. Yes, I did speak to him, and yes, she did speak to Mrs. Obama, and, uh, and those conversations were enormously helpful and very candid about what their experience was and, uh, and what ours might be and how to think about it, and, uh, you know, never a do it or don't, um, but very, very helpful. Governor Deval Patrick, thank you so much. Appreciate Good to be it. with you, Liam. Thank you. You be well. So that's my interview with Deval Patrick, who still, John, is, if you look at most of the national polls, under 1%, maybe slightly better in New Hampshire. And that's his whole game plan is New Hampshire. But you could hear through the course of that interview 
that he doesn't love to get specific about right. things. I don't know mm. if that's just that that's where he is in this stage of the campaign or that's just the way he's always been. Have you always well, found him that way? Well, uh, look, uh, somewhat. I mean, he, he, this campaign's going nowhere. I think that's obvious to anyone. But, you know, it, it's interesting because it tells a story about how dramatically our politics has changed. Keep in mind, when Deval Patrick came out of nowhere to win election as governor here in 2006... Uh, he was sort of the canary in the coal mine for the Obama victory mm-hmm. in 2008. They had the same consultant, David Axelrod, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an impressive African-American man. His slogan was hope and change. A hope and change. And Obama was not big on specifics when he ran the first time either. He tried to keep it more ethereal, more mm-hmm. spiritual, the famous convention speech in 04 about how there aren't red states and blue states, right. just the United States, States of America. And it's, I, I think you'd have to say, both with Patrick in 2006 and then Obama in 2008, it caught a wave. It sold very well. Okay, fast forward little more than a decade. And I wouldn't call our current crop, I wouldn't call our current president, certainly, or really the uh, many of the Democratic contenders uh, I wouldn't call them prototypes of this at all. You see, uh, in the Warren campaign, a real emphasis on getting specific. I have a plan for that. Mm. Yeah, I have yep. a plan for all that. Uh, you see, in uh, Bernie Sanders' approach, a much more caustic, kind of negative uh, rhetorical in approach to campaigning. In your face. Yeah, we got to tear this down. And that, of course, is Donald Trump's stock and trade, right? You got to tear mm-hmm. it all down, drain the swamp. So in just a short period of time, our politics has gone from being open to, if you'll pardon the expression, not to sound too cynical, but sort of Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. politics to really rejecting it and looking for the polar opposite. I'm curious what both of you think of this because you both love politics so much. With Governor Patrick getting in so late, I mean, it was so late when he even threw his hat in the ring. And now he's polling at such small numbers. I mean, just to the casual observer, you think, well, he's just angling for a, a position in the cabinet or to be attorney general or what have you. What do you think of that strategy? And don't you think voters see right through that? I mean, do you think that's what's happening here? I, I don't believe. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't believe it for a second. Really? You think for, he's really running for president? Yeah, I think he thought, for whatever reason, I don't know who had his ear on this or if this is his own thing, he thought that, well, you know, it's a long shot. And he said that from day one. Mm. He said if... Uh, uh, this isn't a Hail Mary pass. It's it's much more than a Hail Mary, right? right? Something along those lines. Uh, I think he thought, I'll give it a try. I think maybe I can catch a wave. I think I fill a niche that isn't being met. Well, I think the answers are coming back mm. pretty harshly. No, yeah. you're not. But listen, uh, I, I covered him closely throughout his career as governor of Massachusetts. I know a lot of people who know him and know the story, and he is not going to be on any one short list for a running mate or a cabinet post. Mm. He has many fine attributes, but being second banana to someone else is not among them. It's because he's not going to want it, or they wouldn't want, want him, him there because he has a reputation 
hard-earned as someone who is not always going to um, follow the playbook mm. that someone else lays out. Let's put it that Isn't way. Isn't this the problem with a lot of these people, though? Right? It They've sure always is. been the most impressive person in the room. Mm. And so then when they have to be in someone's cabinet, they have to be a running mate. It's hard for One them. One of the things that gets forgotten with Deval Patrick is that he announced maybe he did see some sort of a lane or that he could make a splash when he announced. He announced and Mike Bloomberg announced at the same time. Yeah. Mike Bloomberg announced with a $150 million ad buy. Yeah. And it completely drowned out Deval Patrick. And any sort of sunshine he was going to get from those first few days, it was gone. And I think that's the whole story. That's why he's under 1%. But I know Jonathan doesn't want us to get too deep into the national politics here. So let's go back into Massachusetts politics right now. Because there's a, a bill right now in the State Senate Judiciary Committee to ban the use of these non-disclosure agreements as they regard cases of sexual harassment in the workplace. This happened to Gretchen Carlson of Fox News fame. When she sued the network in 2016, she got a settlement but had to sign an NDA. And one of our state senators, before she was a politician, was a staffer. She was sexually harassed on Beacon Hill, got a severance, but had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So Gretchen Carlson was in Massachusetts the other day to push for this bill, to push it out of committee. I talked with her and that state senator, Diana DiZaglio, about their push to end the use of NDAs. Gretchen Carlson and State Senator Diana DiZaglio, thank you so much for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lee, for having us on. Gretchen, in 2016, you alleged that you were fired from your program at Fox News for refusing Roger Ailes' sexual advances. You reached a settlement with the company, but as part of that settlement... You were told you're not allowed to say anything about what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, and my settlement back in 2016 was very progressive for its time because I received a rare public apology, which almost never happened. I was also given the ability to speak about the issue of workplace harassment, which I have taken advantage of, mm-hmm. um, to try to make the world a better place for all women and men. Um, yes, I cannot tell you about the details, although you can go and look at my complaint online if mm. you would like to. My lawyers were, were strategic enough to be able to figure out how to make my case public or we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. You've been pushing Fox News regardless to release you from that non-disclosure agreement. Have they and where does that negotiation stand? We have not heard from them. Uh, we've actually demanded to be released from it and we have not had any communication back from them. That's why we created Lift Our Voices, actually, because we are, uh, it's a nonprofit organization to eradicate NDAs for all women and men in this country. And, you know, it may be too late for us at Fox, maybe not, but we're gonna make sure that we eradicate this for everyone else who's currently being muzzled. Not that the burden should ever be on you, but have you ever been tempted to just break the NDA, tell the world what happened, and just say to Fox News, I dare you to come after me. (laughs) I don't really want to find out how that might turn out. Mm -hmm. Um, I have the ability to do tremendous work on behalf of all women and men in our country without getting into the details. However, it is frustrating to watch my story play out on a miniseries and a major motion picture without being able to say, well, that's not really how that happened, or, well, that's not really the true way that that took place. You know, if the benefit is that if other women feel empowered to come forward from watching those two productions, then that makes it worth it. But I believe that every person in this country should have the ability to have a voice. State Senator DiZaglio, you were sexually harassed when you were a staffer on Beacon Hill. In fact, you lost your job because of it. A similar story to Gretchen's. Uh, But you were told you'll get a severance 
as long as you sign this non-disclosure agreement. You were only 26 years old at the time. How difficult was that decision for you? It was a very difficult decision at the time. My salary was actually only about $30,000 a year. Uh, my car was broken down and I had student loans amongst other, you know, a host of other things that I needed to pay off as a 26-year-old new uh, college graduate. And uh, I didn't have the option on getting that severance package after the wrongful termination for sexual harassment in the State House in Massachusetts uh, to not sign that agreement. Uh, the severance package, by the way, for anybody interested, was uh, only six weeks severance mm -hmm. out of a $30,000 a year salary. And in return, you would say nothing Say about nothing. What to you. I was not allowed to make any uh, comments about what had happened uh, regarding any member of the House of Representatives. These are politicians and their staff. I was not allowed to make any sort of disparaging or negative commentary about what had taken place in the People's House here in Massachusetts. And the governors and that and the uh, the the taxpayers are footing the bill for this right now. So. Um, Yes, I, I was silenced. I was silenced by the Speaker of the House, and that is what continues to occur here because uh, legislators, the Speaker, and the Governor are refusing to come to the table to discuss this issue and to demand that we end the silence and pass the legislation that I filed to ban the use of taxpayer dollars from going towards non-disclosure agreements in cases of harassment, assault, discrimination, and to prevent them in the private sector from being abused in cases of harassment and assault. I do want to get to that legislation in a second. You've said that some of the people who harassed you might even still be working here on Beacon Hill. Does that make it more difficult to do your job, to come here every day? It's been very difficult. In fact, when we took the vote on whether or not to ban the use of non-disclosure agreements in the House of Representatives, and you looked up at the board and everybody was voting on this. I wonder how many of those representatives actually benefited financially from a non-disclosure agreement that they gave to one of their employees. Uh, huge conflict of interest there. But again, you don't know what's happening unless this actually passes. We won't be able to find out who's been using these non-disclosure agreements unless the speaker and the governor take action on this. And they have refused to come to the table on this issue. And uh, it's unacceptable. I hope that the people listening at home call the speaker and call the governor and ask them to pass a spell and to stop silencing people using their tax dollars. Tell us about the proposal. What are the specifics? The proposal uh, bans the use of taxpayer dollars from being used in cases uh, where there is a non-disclosure agreement. So non-disclosure agreements cannot be paid for with tax dollars mm -hmm. at all across the board in Massachusetts. And in the private sector, it reforms how they're able to be used uh, in cases of sexual harassment and assault, making it so that they're not allowed to be forced on any victim or employee who experiences sexual harassment or assault. It does have a provision in there uh, that does allow for a victim to request one from their abuser if they so choose. But again, it would ban them entirely in the, the public sector. And that gets me to a question that I wanted to put to both of you, actually. What about the argument that some victims of sexual harassment might want an NDA, that they don't necessarily want to be public, but they do want to be compensated. How do you deal with that issue? I think that that's totally their right. That's their choice. But the perpetrators should always be outed. That's been the problem for the last three decades in our country, is that we've protected the predator. And not only does that mean that they can go on to be repeat offenders, but it also means that the, the women are the only ones who are silenced. So. If it's their choice that they don't want to have it be public, then that should be their choice. And that's in the legislation, Senator? Yes, it does give the victim the option. Personally, I have, uh, you know, been working on issues 
with this legislation, trying to get it through the process for a while. Now, you said I had you on your show about two years ago when we were working on similar uh, provisions that reformed the way that we use non-disclosure agreements. Non-disclosure agreements isolate the victim, they protect the perpetrator, and they empower them to be able to move very easily from one victim to the next with that future victim not having any warning sign that that predator is coming for them. So non-disclosure agreements do all of this, and I think that they should be banned entirely in cases of sexual harassment and assault and discrimination, any sort of abusive behaviors. However, we have been contacted in my office from other legislators who say that they're concerned that victims might at some point or another actually want a non-disclosure agreement and that if we include that provision that they will vote for this bill to come out of committee and to be passed into law. We have included it for those legislators and still we have not seen any action mm. taken on this bill and that's what's so disheartening Liam and that's why I'm calling on the residents of the Commonwealth to call Governor Baker and call Speaker DeLeo and call their legislators and demand that they take action on this bill. We've come to the table, we've compromised on the language to be able to make some progress for women and men and children across the Commonwealth who have been victimized by predatory behavior and by abusers. Now it's their turn to come to the table. And, and the only reason that I would be in favor of letting the woman dictate whether or not she wanted to have an NDA is because I've seen thousands and thousands of women, once they come forward, never work again because their story has become public, potentially. Now, we're working to change that so that they don't face that kind of retaliation and discrimination anymore. But as long as we're still in this evolutionary period, if they would want to not have their story exposed because they want to work again, then that's why I would be in favor of that. But the perpetrator should always be exposed. And let me just be clear one more thing. You can redact a victim's name from any of these agreements. True and provide complete confidentiality, which is what I've been saying this entire time. A victim's confidentiality can be completely protected in these agreements, in these settlements, without also protecting the identity of the perpetrator. And that's what I keep saying when we talk about the use of public funds in these agreements. We shouldn't be protecting politicians and their staffs who might be abusing employees in this building or, or using public funds you know, to, to cover up their misdeeds anywhere in the Commonwealth. And, using the bogus argument that, you know, if we don't use non-disclosure agreements, somehow a victim won't be able to maintain confidentiality. That is absolutely incorrect. We have the capability to redact a victim's name from all of these documents, maintain their confidentiality, while also not simultaneously protecting the abuser. Just as a last question, Senator DiZaglio, you're a Democratic lawmaker. Gretchen, you once worked for Fox News. This is a nonpartisan issue. Yes, let me just be clear. I've been an independent my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it cuts across. But it cuts across. Republican, that, is, that is the most important part of this issue is that it's apolitical. Before somebody decides to harass you, they don't ask you what party you're in. And we've seen titans from both sides fall. We're seeing this battle play out in Massachusetts with a Republican governor and a Democrat speaker. Mm -hmm. That's proof right there that this is an apolitical issue. State Senator Diana DiZaglio and Gretchen Carlson, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Liam. Thank you. The city is for some glamorous.
stimulating. The Boston area is known for a lot of things, but one thing I know John Keller loves is the music scene around here. Absolutely. Whether it's from the Middle East in Cambridge, the old Ratzkeller in Kenmore Square where everybody played Mm. the first time, right? The Police, Bruce Springsteen, you name it. And now in the last couple of years, Boston Calling bubbled up as this really fun three-day music festival Memorial Day weekend. It's right next to our WBC studios here over on the Harvard Athletic Complex. And it's become this point of pride that we have one of these cool music festivals. Uh, this year we've got Foo Fighters, Rage Against the Machine, the 1975, <laughs> a lot of different, Red Hot a lot of peppers. 90s act, Red Hot, the Chilies. Um, but it feels a little different this year for the first time, perhaps a little bit more corporate. Ticket prices are tiered now. Our producer, Jonathan Case, was pointing out that uh, general admissions passes start at four hundred dollars for all three days. It was one hundred yeah, thirty in twenty thirteen for three with, days. For three days, two right? Days. The first one was two, two days. days. Two, okay. two days. Okay. Um, there are two different VIP options. Platinum is two thousand dollars, and they give for one you an person. elevated platform to gaze down. He writes upon the unwashed masses. <laughs> Um, and let's just say he's throwing the word gentrification around. But, I mean, I think the same thing that has happened to Coachella, Bonnaroo, you name what music festivals there are around the country, it's happened to Boston Calling. The brands come in. They realize all the Gen Zs are here with money and Gen Xers and millennials. And they, the companies swarm in and take over and ruin it, right? Mm. But – People here still do love that we have Boston Calling. People have been complaining about the music festival gentrification for a long time. So I will tell you, when I was 10 years old, I went to Woodstock 94. My mom. <laughs> I was there too. A flower you know child. That? Well, I love I, that. you might have been one of the people I saw rolling around in mud high on mushrooms, I John. I love it. At 10 years old. Don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> yeah. my, mom, my mom, who was a flower child, had been to the original Woodstock, which was 69, okay? Right. And then uh, (laughs) decided to take my two brothers and me in 1994. Did she have a ring of flowers in her hair? I'm sure she did. I blocked most of it out. Um, (laughs) No, but the Red Hot Chili Peppers performed at that. (gasps) Wow, another back. Peter Gabriel was there. Green Day was there. Right. Oh, man. Bob Dylan performed. The Fugees, I want to say, were there. It was a fantastic concert, but I remember it was hot. It was in the summer, and there had been rain for a few days before the festival, so it was mud everywhere. Uh-huh. And the water, the water for a bottle of water was, you know, six, seven bucks. Yep. Right. Slice of pizza, eight bucks. And, and on my the- mom was enraged. She said in 69, <laughs> it was this would never would have happened. Was, what and was his name, the farmer? Uh, Max Yasker. And on the box of the personal pizzas at Woodstock, yes, uh, ninety four, was the peace sign. Remember the circle with the lines in it, and written around it in that flowery Peter Max style of nineteen sixties writing, it said, (laughs) "Have a piece of pizza." P E A C E. (laughs) You were at Woodstock ninety four. We we probably crossed paths. I had a man. Uh, 
you know, we stayed in a tent. I had a man defecate outside of our tent. Oh, wow. Um, in that's the middle of the night. A real well, that's experience. just like covering politics. Okay, I mean, but that let's all talk about, you know, when you, when you talk about what goes on now with Coachella yeah. mm-hmm. and Bonnaroo and all of these, what's changed it, of course, is Instagram. And the mm. fact that all these young kids are there, especially Coachella being in Southern California, the really young, hot girls from L.A. show up. They've got different outfits for every hour. They yeah. have to post photos of themselves. And so, you know, it's not exactly this uh, organic experience yeah. no, that I actually, I sh- supposed to have. I should explain. I was there as a reporter. I was there with a camera crew doing Were you a really? story yeah. about the clash of the generations. You know, oh, baby wow. boomers with Woodstock 1 and now <laughs> and Gen boys. Xers. Ten-year-old I, I don't recall I'm meeting you. I had to be the youngest one <laughs> but, there. But I, will, I do recall vividly uh, we were... Uh, uh, shooting some footage of the uh, the porta potty area. Oh God! Yeah, where I that. Uh, in about the first fifteen minutes of the festival, they all backed up yes. and were broken. Yes, and this That's created why a, this man was defecating uh, behind my. Tent yes, in the right. Of the night. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, right next to this really disgusting area with all the backed up porta potties. <laughs> Was an an area marked off for camping, and by marked off, I mean a couple of flimsy wooden stakes with a string. That's it yeah. that you could step over. And I uh, we stopped to interview a young couple uh, who had pitched their tent and had laid out their blanket right next to the demarcation line. Uh, they were there's a girl and a guy. The guy was kind of passed out, drunk, mm-hmm. uh, laying on the blanket. He had a T-shirt on that said "Shove it." <laughs> and uh, uh, so we Charming. talked with the young woman, and uh, we, I asked her, I said, um, why did you pitch your tent here? And she said, oh, you mean the toilets? Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's a, lot, there's a little fence there, so I, I figured it was okay. <laughs> and I just, I just remember that. I'm thinking, wow. I mean, you're 20, you're 21 yeah. Yeah. years old, and you think a, a string... Is going to protect you from a a crap tsunami. Well, and let's not forget the scandal of the Fire Music Festival of 2017. There you go. Where a guy duped all of these young New Yorkers and other people uh, thinking that this luxury music festival was happening on an island. They sent him thousands upon thousands of dollars. He didn't have any food, tents, water. He couldn't accommodate anyone and it was a scandal and a disaster everybody wants to be at the exclusive experience well i have not made it to boston calling but i understand it's it's pretty well run they have some issues with lines and everything you get that anywhere but uh that it's it's not this kind of experience the first one was on city hall plaza right and that was kind of you know it's just a thrown together uh, yeah. ground there. It was not a good place to watch a concert. I actually went to it to report on it. But I, I will say I love the return of the 90s stuff. Red Hot Chili Peppers, yeah. Foo Fighters, and Rage, Rage Against the Machine. Machine are the three headliners That's of each fun. day of this three-day festival. On New Year's Eve, it was Green Day performing with Paula Abdul. And yeah, the New Year's Eve, you know, spectacular. They're was, oldies and, now. And uh, the year before was Mariah Carey was the main thing. And I thought to myself... We've really run out of ideas. Yeah, the well. world has run out of ideas. There's nothing new under the sun but anymore. That's no always one's original. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but now it's just rehashing the old well, stuff. Well, you know what? This is the thing. I think the young, hot musicians don't want to come to some of these festivals anymore. Because it, it mm. among the sort of cool kids, it's not cool. 
Well, and the music business has changed to the point where a lot of the most creative musical talent in our city, here in Alston and around the city, and elsewhere around the country, uh, is, you know, you have to find them on the web. You know what I mean? They're not yeah. making the corporate cut here. Right, right, they, right. They're right. not, and they probably never will become big brand names because the business is so diffuse now. Mm. Paula just had to step out uh, to go to CBS and Boston. I think she was stuff. revolted by she was. my <laughs> story. It was your story honest. of the porta potty at Woodstock. Yeah. Uh, so, do, do we, I guess we'll wrap up. We'll wrap up the show because Paula left us and big timed us. Um, and we feel empty without her. So, hey, hey, if you enjoy what you're hearing, or even if you're repelled by it, but, <laughs> but strangely compelled to listen to it, please uh, subscribe so you get it delivered to your device uh, every week. Share with a friend, tell a friend. If you want to tweet, uh, follow us on Twitter. It's at Studio BZ Pod. Uh, Liam Martin's Twitter handle is at Liam WBZ. Paula is at Paula Eben. Okay, and I am at Keller at Large. And um, thanks, thanks for listening. Yeah. And next week, same time, same place, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. Man, oh man, do I have so many stories from Woodstock '94. <laughs> yeah. There was a one woman who.